we're going to dance a bit in the sense that we're going to we're going to dive in deep on some stuff and then we're going to pull back out of it and i may or may not successfully tie it all together i'd like to these texts are amazing the story of the visitation on top of then the story of the annunciations when mary learns that she's going to be the mother of jesus uh, this is a great place for your personal piety, for your personal devotion to see yourself in the Bible. It is not wise to read yourself into every passage of the Bible. Not all of it is written to you, and in that way, not all of it is for you in the same way. And it's all for you as a Christian, as the testimony of Jesus Christ and his history. Can someone testify? Thank you. Okay. Uh, but beyond this, then, beyond it being your treasure tome, your great book of wisdom, uh, not all of it is written like the newspaper. Not all of it is written exactly the same. And so some of it ends up being potent and direct and at you, and other things are more obscure. And so as a Christian, you have to latch on to what you can understand. You have to grab what is clear and use what is clear to try to unpack what then may be unclear. This is one of the reasons, very much a tangent here, but one of the reasons why the book of Revelation does not feature so prominently in anything that I say or do with you as a pastor, even though it is probably the book I have studied more than any other book in the Bible. I know it backwards and forwards, not quite, but almost, and in Greek. It's a lot of time in there. But it's also one of the most confusing parts of the entire Bible. And to just begin to understand it, you've got to do all sorts of time unpacking stuff. And to compare that to the simplicity that we have in, the, in Romans 12 here. Let love be genuine. What a, what a straightforward thing that you could just probably repent in front of for a while, I think, right? How do you be genuine in the world built on what you look like and what you show off and how much you have? How to be genuine when everyone wants to say it's going to be fine tomorrow when all of us feel like it won't? How do you let love be genuine when you won't let down the wall and won't come out of the cage? Right? This isn't you individually. This is a society wherein love has grown cold. I don't want to talk about Jesus as a philosopher, but there is something to be offered to all the pagans out there and the frustrating nihilism that's annihilating the inside of their hearts and their souls so that they got to like spike themselves and paint themselves and do everything crazy. And I'm not against any of it per se. It's the overabundance of it that shows the lack of identity and the great pain with which they are striving and struggling internally. Jesus has some philosophy to offer them that any American can hear and learn from without having to become a Christian. And that is, you should let your love be genuine. There is no fake face. Whatever you think you're pretending to be, God sees right through. And if you would know the grace of love that comes from God in the face of another person, Christians who together are willing to trust each other back to back, even when the chips are down, well then love must actually be genuine. Otherwise it's just a show. 
Isn't it interesting that to abhor what is evil is right next to love being genuine? One of the difficulties with American paganism is that it doesn't believe there's such a thing as evil unless that's Christianity and maybe Hitler. And they're kind of the same thing, aren't they? And that's about the level of literacy you're dealing with in the generation that is coming up. I'll say it again. They are illiterate. They can text, they can scan, but knowledge compounding over a lifetime into intelligent thought? No, not coming our way. Not through the public systems, not through the education and the media especially. It is dividing and fracturing their brains. They can't even think straight. Look at them. They can't walk straight. They're shaky. They're anxious. Whatever we're doing to these kids, it ain't good. And I would contend that before it's anything in their food, it is certainly something not in their souls. It is a lack of truth in their souls. They are children who know their lives are worth nothing. They could have been picked from a hat. They could have been aborted at will. They're going to live on a planet which, according to at least one of them, who's very famous, is going to burn up in 12 years. Can you blame them for not really feeling so great all the time when you're 12? Right? We have somebody testify. We have... A better philosophy. You can abhor what's evil. Did you know that? There's good and there's evil. You cannot like the evil. And when you don't like it, it doesn't hurt you as much. It can still. But it's not in your bedroom with you. It's not in your, in your well, it is in your heart, isn't it now? But that's the problem. When you're alone with your heart, what do you got? And that's what everyone out there is trying to do, is live alone with their heart. And that is a scary and sad place. So to abhor what is evil is to learn that your heart's not a good test of that. And then begin to trust what God says is evil. And to have love be genuine, then you must believe those evil things are evil. Do you need a list? You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. That one's tough, right? That one's tough. Does that mean we're not supposed to try? Are we not supposed to hold fast to what is good? Uh, yesterday morning, I, I fielded a question on my Saturday show. I have a Saturday morning TV. Hey, hey. Uh, it's, it's from 9 to 11. It's called the Saturday Morning Chill. You can actually watch it live now because right now I'm broadcasting out of my garage. So if you swing by on a Saturday morning, you can see me. I'll wave at you while I'm talking in a microphone. But I, I field questions from the Internet. And there's quite a pile that usually comes in. And they're from all over the place. But a number of them come up again and again. And, and one of them yesterday had to do with my recent kind of discovery of a song. I found a song, not on the radio, I went looking, but, but I found it kind of from the radio. And it's a song that in a million years, I would never want that song in my church. Not in a million years. But I can't stop playing it the rest of the week, and it's all about Jesus. Every time I feel sick, every time I feel sad, every time I want to sit down and cry, I go and I listen to that song. And it reminds me of a love I haven't thought of for a long time. And so when I, when I found that song, and I grabbed it, I started listening to it again, again, and again. Why? I wanted to hold fast to what was good. I knew what I'd been missing. And what I've been missing is praise, no doubt, and worship, no doubt, but not because it's not here. I'll just contest that from my point of view as your pastor, I've been embroiled in the war to preserve the liturgy for the last 15 years at all costs against a spirit that just will not back off. And it's because it wants to remove the Lord's Supper from our midst. 
I wrote a book about it. It's my third book, Without Flesh. You can go read it. Please do. But I really have given myself over to holding fast to what is good and to recognizing that what we have in our hymnal is already very, very good. And so if we don't like it, it's because our heart is again deceiving us, that we haven't learned how to see it. It was amazing how much it hit me last week in this, after finding this one song and having to contest with the, the idea of praise and worship music. And ask me about it later. I don't want to get into it right now. Ask me about why I'm against it. Okay, but since I'm against praise and worship music, what do I do with the liturgy when I sing for this holy house and all those who offer here their worship and praise? If I'm against praise and worship, what do I do with my heart at that point? And I'll tell you, I just totally ignored it for the last 15 years. And my heart has been without praise. And I'm thankful to God for Christians out there preaching it back to my sad, bitter ears. Does that mean that before two weeks ago I wasn't a good Christian and a good pastor doing all No, it just meant I needed one more thing and God gave it to me. And that's the path he's going to give you when you seek to put his words upon the door frames of your house. And upon, you know, within your car to go with your children and speak about these things when you drive places. When the word is there upon your heart and in your lips, it's going to benefit you. It's going to strengthen you. And you're going to know the good when you see it and you're going to want to hold fast. Because you know there's nothing like the words of Psalm 23. And you know there's nothing like the words of John 3.16. And you know there's nothing like the words of Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Can you do more? Can you do any? If we want to be powerful Lutherans from our dark and rank corner in which we dwell and hide and criticize the world, then it's high time we believe what we believe and hold fast and abhor all things that would take it from us. And in that, then, see all of these encouragements as just that. Not things that you in guilt must do or else you haven't been justified. That's what the Reformed do with their lack of sacrament. You are justified. You are sanctified. You are complete. Now stand. Stand in it. And let not the devil take it from you with his many lies. The promise that you have to cling to. Let me give you some text here more again. Isaiah 11, verses 1 through 5. So what I want you to get out of this more than anything else is that this sevenfold Spirit of God, this Holy Spirit who the Pentecostals with their babbling tongues claim they have, and who that other revivalistic movement and all of its big barn churches claim they have and we don't, that sevenfold spirit is the Holy Spirit who Jesus Christ sent on Pentecost. And the way he sent it is in the preaching of the apostles. I should say him. The way they send him is in the words of the apostles. The words of the apostles. What's that? It's the red letters is what it is. It's the writings of Paul is what it is. And when these words inhabit you, and then you hear them say, go back to the words of old, to the Psalms, to the prophets, to the Torah, and find Christ there. Again, they become a new mind for you. Paul calls this in 1 Corinthians, the, uh, the mind of Christ. And he says in another place that he will transform your mind, conforming it not to this world. It's been conformed to the world. He's going to transform it to be like his. How? These words. And what I want you to get from these words is that this is a promise. That the sevenfold spirit of God is not something he gives out meagerly or impartially or he withholds until you're ready for it. 
It is instead an overflowing cup, an ever-living stream. These words don't ever go away. We just put them on our shelf and stop believing them. That's it. You want the Spirit of God to ask and then open and he will give. Verse 2 promises this to Jesus. First, how can I tell you that you are guaranteed the Holy Spirit? It's because Jesus gained the Holy Spirit for you. Jesus gained the right for man to have the Spirit sent back to us again after our breath is being pulled away by our sin. And so when Jesus comes to these words as a man, first time reading them, he knows that they're about what he will have as a man among men. And can you imagine what this means? I mean, the words are quite weak here in English. Uh, wisdom, understanding, counsel, might, knowledge, fear of the Lord. And then the name the Lord's first there, right? The name. The first thing the Spirit gives you is the name. That's why the name Christian is stuck. It's because to be a little Christ is to be one with Jesus the Christ. And everything about Christianity is about being brought into relationship, membership, activity, life in and from him. So his name rests first upon himself and then upon you, of course, in the waters of baptism. I, I hate to give short time to the name, but I want to zoom in on these other six. Though. There's something pretty quirky about these six words. Wisdom, understanding, counsel, might, knowledge, fear of the Lord. And I don't know if anyone's ever found this, but, but, but me. And the only reason I say that is because it's a complete quirk that I found it. But I want to tell you about how and why, because it's a big part of what I'm doing. Uh, you know, I'm trying to encourage us as a congregation to be a congregation for fathers to read the scriptures at home with their children, believing that will establish us for the long term. It always does. In this, the best way to get fathers to be comfortable with that is to have fathers praying the Psalms. Does that mean women can't pray the Psalms? No, of course not. We're family. So, of course, what we want is everybody praying the Psalms. Because if you're praying the Psalms, then God is giving you the prayers he's going to answer before your eyes over and over and over again. In fact, you'll go to the Psalter in a habit to pray, not knowing what's there, but you'll find what you know and you already needed to pray. The more you get in it, the better it gets. And the Proverbs are the same thing, only it's like the magic eight ball of eternal wisdom. Like, how do you know how to be smart when other people are stupid? Like, just read a proverb a day. It will begin to wisen you. Okay, so knowing that, believing that's something that's intentional here, that we're going to do that here because it's going to be the heart of all the other things that might grow. Whatever else we want to do from cathedral to market to whatever, it's useless if we are people of wisdom in the word. We're just building idols, and I'm not here to build idols. Not at all. So then getting into those words myself. Saying that if you're going to do this, then you have to see me doing this. So I have dove into Proverbs with all my heart. I left Revelation in the dust. And Proverbs is me the rest of my life. I'm learning Hebrew just so I can do it. I'm spending a lot of time on verses 2 through 7. A text area that most commentators consider to be irrelevant. Uh, they consider it to be an advertisement for ancient literature on wisdom. Basically a kind of a summary of sorts, but not really much worth time. I disagree. I think it's the essence of the entire book, but let's just leave that behind for a moment. And let me say that he introduces about 15 key words in the book of Proverbs, and four of them are in Isaiah's list. Four of them. Along with introducing that set of key words, in the early part of the book, he even narrows down closer to a set of three, and then seven, and then a few more words that spread out from there. And these are some of the first words, and then the last word in that section. 
So the spirit of wisdom and understanding, that's Proverbs 1, verse 2. To know wisdom and discipline, to understand the words of understanding. Those two sections, right here. Isaiah says, the proverbial promises, the word of God to Solomon will be upon this man, Jesus. Jesus. But there's another nice point I can illustrate from this, I think. Um, well, let's first show that uh, the rest of verse 2, if you scoot down, so the last two of our six is knowledge and fear of the Lord. Knowledge is the first word of Proverbs 2, uh, to know wisdom and discipline. And then fear of the Lord is the last phrase of Proverbs 2 through 7, the section we're talking about. So now we have an alpha and omega. You got the opening things, and you got the bookends at the end. Do you think Isaiah has read Proverbs? I mean, that's my point. He's going to say, the Messiah is going to come, and he's going to be filled with a spirit that does this. And of the six things, four of them are epicentric to what Proverbs says is true at the very start of the book. I think Isaiah knew Proverbs quite well. I think he relied on it all the time. Here's the point. It's an insight from Dr. Luther that there are no prophets or apostles who ever get new revelation that denies what came before and always, in fact, further illuminates what was already there. Nobody preaches anything actually new. Just new words. Because we get confused and babble about it a bunch and we have to think about it again from a different direction as a new generation. Huh? Follow me on this? Someone testify. Amen. Amen? You got it? Okay. So, Solomon's language is here and being foisted upon the promise to Christ. Okay? And so, knowledge, fear of the Lord, wisdom, understanding, that's all Proverbs. He now introduces these other two words, counsel and might, that are very much, I mean, they show up, but they're very much Isaiah's words. Because right there you have wonderful counselor, mighty God, right? Just from two chapters prior. Now, in terms of deep diving into what Isaiah wants to use with these words, I'm going to suggest to you, it's the same idea. It's the idea that the Spirit of God comes to enlighten you. Now, think about that word. And the way that word is used by Eastern religions. And I want to emphasize I'm using it the exact same way. That the Holy Spirit of God comes to enlighten you. To lift you up with illumination. That you might see what others cannot see. What you could not see while you were in darkness. Before you were enlightened. Before it was revealed to you that you could not see. And revealed to you what you can see now. Revelation, not the end of the Bible, but the entire thing. God speaking, it's true. And the spirit of that understanding... Might, strength, counsel, all this. This, again, is what God has promised you personally. You personally. Do you get to sit at the right hand of God and rule over all things with all authority and might? No, you don't. Does the guy who does listen to you, specifically, whenever you want him to? Yes, he does, in fact. He does. And his eye is on you. More than your eye is on him. And for that sake, because his eye is on you more than your eye is on him, he is always doing things you're not ready for. Because he has to move you toward salvation. And you keep trying to move toward yourself. It's just a habit, right? The things I would not do and so forth. Huh? But the fact is his eye is on you. And he, is, he, he wants you to know that. 
to walk about daily with the certainty of that, that you might even then turn your voice to him, hallelujah, because he's listening. Every time you would say, thank you, Jesus, he's listening. I had a moment, I hope I don't distract myself with this one, but I had a moment this past week where, it was, it was like, maybe it was even Sunday afternoon, last week, last weekend. can't remember, it was a while back, though. Um, and uh, something happened. I was listening to music, I was riding, you know, doing my thing, studying, that's what I always do. And um, I said out loud the name Jesus. And I was kind of like, I think I was excited. I found, I said, like, this, the answer's Jesus. Okay, so I thought in my head, the answer's Jesus. I said, Jesus, out loud. And I like wanted to shut my mouth because I felt like I cursed. Jesus. That's what I said. I said it just like that. So which one was it? And then I started to wonder, why don't I say it more often like that, actually? Why don't I just say Jesus? Why am I ashamed of? Why have the words in the name, that seventh part of the sevenfold spirit, why has the name been taken off of my lips? I'll tell you a confession here too. A year ago, when I started studying Proverbs deeply and praying for, it's a year and a half now, I guess, right? COVID 2020, everyone's in the chrysalis of some kind. I'm praying deeply for understanding and clarity because I really love being a pastor and being a father and I would like to continue doing that until Jesus comes back. And I realized, or I thought, or I had this struggle where I felt as if Jesus needed some new branding. You know what branding is? Now, branding is how you sell stuff. If you, you know what Coca-Cola is because of branding. And the reason they sell more than Pepsi is because their brand was first and Pepsi's was second, and that's the law. It's the way it works. It's the rules of the market. Branding is about trying to distinguish yourself so that others won't leave what you've already got. You don't want them to leave you for somebody else. So you give them a symbol, an image, something that you can hold to and cling to that you will trust. And I was like thinking, I got, when I, someone asked me a question, you know, who's your hero? Like Jesus was sort of the obligatory answer. The obligatory answer. He needed a new branding. What's wrong with Jesus? Well, all he is is a long-haired guy with some sheep and... He doesn't want anyone to be mad or something. I knew that wasn't true. I've been frustrated by that for a long time. That, that our image of Christ is feminized and, and weak and, and wordless. Go read the red letters sometime and see how soft and meek and mild Jesus is when he confronts his enemies. I mean, it's not all just buttercups and daffodils. So I, I started praying again. We can't rebrand Jesus. You know what it really is, is that Lutheranism needs some rebranding. We're thinking about why we are what we are. We're Christians. We're Christians. You ever read a Roman Catholic who says something like, um, uh, you're like, are you a Christian? And they're like, no, I'm a Catholic. You ever met someone who said that? No? I've met Lutherans who said that. I've met Catholics who said that. Right? They're, they're, what religion are you? Lutheran. Lutheran's not a religion. Christianity's a religion. Catholicism isn't a religion outside of Christianity being a religion. So the branding that is needed is not that Jesus needs new branding. We need to be branded by Jesus again. We need to have his marks, his words, written not only on the outside of us, like everyone else does with their gods, but on our hearts. So that we cannot think of something other than what he has said is true. Because we want to hold fast to it, because we know that it's good. Now, again, my hope in the Isaiah text is to tell you that this is a promise for you. This is not a maybe. You are not going to be a fool. You are going to become wise. You did, don't get to go to heaven as a fool. It is not allowed. 
And so while you wait here, God has given you prayer, word, and sacrament in order to sit and hear from him and learn to be wise amongst and above and beyond what the insight of this world has to offer. So that the angels even marvel at such things as they see us demonstrate for the universe the electing grace of God. It's a marvelous reality you've been birthed into. And again, I tell you, cling to it. Don't let it be a maybe. Don't think that just because you didn't feel it, God wasn't present. That's not how it works. If his word wasn't spoken, then he wasn't present. That's how it works. Huh? The spirit of wisdom is yours. The spirit of might is yours. So if you tremble in your boots, if you have more anxiety than you want, let me suggest again, the problem's a lack of repentance. And it's not one of these things where you have this really bad sin that you just won't give up. No, 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 no. Is that every time you're anxious, you're not praying. It's that simple. Every time you're anxious, you've decided not to pray, and you're trying to do it by yourself. You can't pray and be anxious at the same time. You can pray and be afflicted at the same time. Well, that's, that's a good segue there. The word I want to get the most into in our Luke text today, the, the gospel according to Luke chapter 1, the Magnificat, the Visitation, all this... It's in verse 48 and verse 50, 52, 48 and 52. It's translated there as humble estate, humble estate. Now, I mean, I, I'm not even sure what that means by itself in a vacuum. As an English major and a poet, like, like an estate is like something you do planning for with money and things, right? So how do you have a humble estate? Um, but I think it, what it means probably more evidently from the context is like way of being, right? The, the way that you are. But it's not very English. We don't talk that way. Um, humble estate. Then you have this word humble that's there, which really could kind of just be there by itself without the word estate. But what I want to do is tie that word from the English, which is largely about kind of sanctimony, uh, get away from that idea and tie it to the Greek word to the Hebrew word, because I think that really opens it up a great deal. The Greek word is typenos. Uh, if you want to write it down in English, like T-A-P-E-I-N-O-S, something like that. Um, typenos. Uh, it, it does mean humble, meek, subjected is maybe a better word, like powerless, uh, unable to help oneself, helpless would be a good word for typing us, right? Um, but there's an even better way to get at it, and, and that's to jump back into Hebrew. So, a little bit of history here. Uh, the Bible comes to us over a great deal of time with a number of individuals speaking and writing it down, and that means that even the Hebrew changes over the course of it because it's generations down that uh, things are happening. People don't speak the same for more than 50 years, usually. I mean, look at Shakespeare. It's hard for a reason. It's called battle. Um, so, uh, with the Hebrew being what it is, it was preserved tremendously carefully uh, up to the point of the dispersion and, and the captivity, where in original copies of things, it would appear that they were lost. But other copies of the Hebrew, they survived and were taken even then out into the dispersion. And 
Even though the people are brought back to the land and resettle it before Christ comes, according to Cyrus's proclamation, that's all in Daniel, um, and Ezra and Nehemiah, even though that is said, everyone's supposed to come back, there are a lot of Hebrews who've been scattered to the winds who have found it to be quite lucrative to be where they are, and they don't really want to go back. So they stay where they are. One of the major places that they stay is in the city of Alexandria. This is kind of the rising star of Egypt, one of the wonders of the ancient world. Uh, the reason you don't know about Alexandria, if you don't know, is just because it got burned by the Muslims in the 400s. Everything was destroyed, and so it's just kind of a lost idea, basically. But it was one of the five major locations of early Christianity up to that point. Uh, 200, 300, 400, a major city with Christian influence. But again, going back 500 years before uh, Jesus, in Alexandria, you have a good population of Hebrews, wealthy ones, uh, who have care and love for the scriptures. And they seek to have it translated. Now, if this had been in Judea, it wouldn't have happened. Pharisees, they'd never do this. They wouldn't put it in the Greek. No way, it's profane. But where they were, they wanted it in the common language. You, know, you debate some other place, was that right or was that wrong? Uh, they did it. They put it into Greek. It's called the Septuagint. The Septuagint. Um, that is the word 70 in Greek. And it's named for the tradition of 70 elders being involved in the translation. I don't know if that's helpful at all. You can also just write LXX like you would for a Super Bowl yeah, uh, for 70. And that's the way that a lot of people will keep track of the Septuagint in their notes because it's an awkward word. So LXX Septuagint. That translation is in some ways one of the key insights into what Hebrew words even mean. We certainly have Hebrew texts that come to us from other traditions. But Hebrew as a language is a bit obscure. And it, it, well, how does it come about? I don't think anybody knows. It's related to other ancient languages that came off the Ark, like Akkadian and Ugaritic and things like that. And it's related to later languages like Aramaic that are completely kind of new but built on it by the time Jesus comes about. Um, so how do we know what a word means, especially when, when the words change over time from Genesis to, to Malachi? And one of the ways is that the, the Greek translation gives us a first look. It translates words with some consistency. And so if you're trying to understand what's said of old, uh, the connecting words can help. And that's where we're going right now. So if you go and you find this word typonos in the Old Testament Septuagint, in the Greek, and you find it used regularly, it's used regularly with or like another word. It translates a very specific word. A word that is very much about what it means to be a Christian. Very much what it means to be Davidic, even. To be one who has the heart of David. The word is anath, and it comes uh, down in history as something like an answer. An answer. But then it stops meaning answer. And it comes to mean, again, to subject, to put down. And then eventually, it just means to be put down. To be the one who is afflicted is really the good word, afflicted. From answer, hey, sire, can I have some help? I'll show you an answer and subject you until you're afflicted. No new taxes and all that kind of thing. The fact is, the afflicted person is the person who is aware that life is not as it should be. That's humility. You want humility. It's the ability to see that life is not as it should be. 
And then when something goes wrong, you getting angry about it just makes it worse. And then you having your way might have made it worse yet. Knowing your affliction and that it's good for you, that is what the Holy Spirit of God promises in wisdom. I mean, you can see why nobody believes this. It's like backwards. My affliction is good for me? How could that be? Well, because until I was afflicted, I went astray, the psalmist says in Psalm 119. Uh, if you go through Psalm 119 in the King James, do it on a computer, you'll find the word afflicted used, I think it's eight, but it might be nine or ten times. Just read them all in order one time. You know, Psalm 119 is that really big long one, right? Just, just get those verses. It's like eight or nine verses there. And they're about how good it is that God has put a cross upon David. How good it is that he does not see his own way. How good it is that he has a God and is not alone as this man of dirt and pain. So then when Mary comes along and she says he has looked upon the afflicted state of us, the afflicted one, this isn't just Mary being like, yay me, I got the, the beauty queen contest one. No, this is Mary recognizing that what's happening to her isn't happening for her alone. It's happening for everybody. And that she just gets to kind of be close to the whole thing while it goes on. And as a good Hebrew in fear and trembling, recognizing the power and might that's coming. The fire that's coming. Mary recognizes then that the afflicted one is not only any human who can see that life isn't what it ought to be. It is then, excuse me, it will come back. It is then Israel itself. The reason I pause is because, again, it's a, it's a big thought, and I don't know if I gave you a good translation or, or tangent to it. So there's, there's more than one way to look at us. You are you by yourself. You are you not by yourself with other people who share blood types and DNA with you because you all kind of broke off with little sponges and then grew and stuff. Right? And then you are like other people who dress the same and eat at some of the same places and then go on some of the same roads. And then you're like people who dress the same, eat at the same places and go on completely different roads. And then there's people that you're not like at all. They used to be really far away, so now they live right next to you. And it all spins in a big, big cycle. That movement from individual to group, and then understanding that your group matters, whatever level you're in, I mean, it does all the way to the top. Like, it's not wrong to have your group care about your group. It's weird not to. You know, when you're playing basketball, you don't give them more chances. And when you're trying to survive on a planet that's evolved out of chaos and muck and we're all gonna die anyway, as the atheists say, then you gotta care about your group. And since we're not on that planet, we're on one that God created, wherein is he established a resurrection that shall never fail, and the only ones who don't receive it are those who forget, well then again, you gotta care about your group. And so Mary sees that with the oppression of the Roman legions 
and the years and years of waiting for the Hasmodean dynasty to make good on its promises, which it did not do. As they languished in poverty and struggled, trying to make a meager living from the soil where they were, now God was coming. So the afflicted one was not just Mary, but all of Israel. All of the people. But this is where the fractal goes up. It's not just all of Israel then. It's all of Israel through history. From Abraham to all of them. She says, the afflicted one has been heard. Our prayers are lost answered. Eve who said, behold the Lord, and she was wrong. Now here he is. And then in this, she doesn't just say it for Israel backwards. She says it for Israel forward, and that's you. You're the new Israel, the New Testament, the new man. Members of this body, incorruptible, invincible, wherein the Word of God dwells. That's just one word in this magnificent song, which is so flush with power. Power that Christianity has forgotten. We forget that our power is the power of conviction, that we don't need a sword. We just need some time and a good ear. And because our wisdom and philosophy is true, it wins. Not so that it might be right, but so that all might flourish. And we know that though in history this will go up and down as nations rise and fall, as people groups reject the truth and descend themselves into fiery chaos, we know that all along there is not a permanent fall, but a permanent rise that Christ has not only attended, but achieved, and in which you already participate by faith. By faith alone. Ah, with some bread and wine. Every week to remind that faith alone that you're more than a conqueror of this world. A world of slaves. You're more than a conqueror. In the name of Jesus. Amen.